Welcome to Looking at Lucasfilm, the podcast with a different perspective on the world of Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and all of the other entities that George Lucas, Kathleen Kennedy, and Dave Filoni, and the rest of the team at Lucasfilm have dreamed up over the past 40 years. I'm entertainer writer Jim Hill, and my co-host, the one and only Dan Z, he and I are recording this on Wednesday, August 5th. This past weekend was kind of a tough time for Star Wars fans, wasn't it, Dan? Yeah, a lot of we're losing a, a lot of uh, iconic members, not only of the Star Wars community, but just uh, in the world of entertainment. This is true. This is true. And, and uh, first and foremost, we lost Wilfred Brimley, uh, who uh, for Star Wars fans, uh, you remember him as Noah, the grumpy old hermit from uh, what was it? Ewoks, the Battle of Endor TV movie ran on ABC back in November of 85. And what was a sequel of sorts to Caravan of Courage, an Ewok adventure, which uh, also ran on ABC, but in November of 84. Um, and the other gentleman we lost, of course, was Tom Pollock, uh, who was the chairman of the American Film Institute, also former head of Universal Pictures. Um, he was 77 when he passed on Saturday. Uh, we're going to get to the important role that Tom played in the formation of the Star Wars franchise in the second half of today's show. But back to, to Brimley. Uh, now, uh, you've seen, uh, undoubtedly, uh, you know, uh, Battle for Endor, right, uh, Dan? I saw, I saw both of them the, when they actually aired, and that was it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, I, and I know we've talked about this um uh, you know, this TV movie on a previous episode of looking at Lucasfilm, but uh, what we're going to be talking about today is how Grimley got the role of Noah. And, and it was kind of a roundabout thing. Um, ILM had been hired by 20th Century Fox to do the effects for Ron Howard's Cocoon. Um, that sci-fi fantasy was shot in St. Petersburg, Florida from August to October of 1984. And, now, you've seen that one, right? Or... Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's still a charmer. Um, and, but George Lucas, um, he first got to see it in January of 1985. Uh, this is when, uh, up at ILM, um, you know, that, that, uh, Ken Ralston and Ralph McQuarrie were inserting effect shots into Cocoon. And George, looking at the raw footage, noted two things. Uh, Wilfred Brimley, even though he was only 49 when he shot Cocoon, uh, had a real gift for playing grumpy old men. And Ron Howard had a, was obviously skilled when it came to mixing, you know, complicated effects work and grounded performances with his actors. Um, so this is why when even before Cocoon opened in theaters in June of 85, George reached out to uh, Brimley and offered him the opportunity to play Noah uh in Ewoks, the Battle of Endor. Uh, Brimley said yes, and by May of that same year, he was on set up in the Redwoods around San Rafael. Um, kind of interesting. It was a fairly lengthy shoot for a TV movie. Warwick Davis, who played Wicked the Ewok in 1983's Return of the Jedi, 1984's Caravan of Courage, and 1985's Battle for Endor, uh, told Star Wars, uh, excuse me, Star Log magazine, that he was on set for seven weeks, starting in May. And then after a several week pause in production, uh, was back on set shooting additional scenes for the Battle of Endor. And uh, what I kind of find interesting about that, Dan, is 
that's kind of how Marvel Studios operates these days. I mean, they'll, they'll shoot the script. Uh, they'll do a work in progress, you know, cut of the film, eyeball it and go, okay, you know, we need a couple of additional scenes or we need to reshoot that. Uh, and here's George doing, you know, with that exact same battle plan only back in the mid eighties. Um, man always ahead of his time. He was, he was, um, in fact, the, the weirdest part of it is 35 years ago this week, Dan, uh, Warwick was back on set with Brimley, again, up in the Redwoods of San Rafael, finishing the reshoots on, at the Battle of Endor. Um, so by this point, Wilford wasn't necessarily a happy camper. He didn't like uh, the, the two gentlemen that George had hired to direct the film, uh, Jim and Ken Weed, a, a brother team of directors, uh, kind of like the Russo brothers on uh, Endgame and Infinity War. Um, so... <laughs> at this point, Brimley's only taking direction from Joe Johnston, which, you know, again, I don't have to explain to you who Joe Johnston is. but That's a pretty good pedigree. And yeah. in Marvel, too, with Captain America. There you go. There you go. You know. Um, but anyway, uh, the interesting thing is, uh, speaking of directors, though, it was while Ron Howard was up at Skywalker Ranch, you know, just sort of signing off on, on the effects work that Ralph and Ken were doing a cocoon in, in uh, the late winter of 85. Um, by the way, this was really good effect stuff because the very next year, cocoon took home the, that year's Academy Award for effects. Yes. Uh, but George approached Ron while he was up at Skywalker and, and asked him if he'd be interested in doing Willow. So, I, you know, long story short, Battle of Endor, not the greatest TV movie. Um, no. And curiously, still not available over on Disney+. Plus. Um, but it did lead to some interesting things, like the Blurgs. Um, yes. You know, <laughs> which, no, uh, no idea goes stays on the cutting room floor, which I really like because they, they it's like a it is like art. You sort of keep an idea and mm -hmm. keep it in your sketchbook. And then eventually you just find inspiration to use it somewhere else. And it works out pretty well. Then it does. Then it does. OK, so let's see what else has gone on since we last recorded. Oh, um, we've got Comic-Con at home, uh, July 22nd through the 26th. It's um, kind of a whimper, really. Well, you know, I, 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 I thought that as well, but I wanted to be sure to mention, in fact, because you can go, this panel is available for viewing online right now. There was a panel for Dr. Afara. I, can I get that name right again? Afra. Afra. Why yes. can I not remember this? <laughs> you know, I, I love the comic books and I, I've been wanting to make time for this, but the, the audiobook original, they did an hour long panel on the production of that. Uh, but that seems to have been, you know, the only thing that went on. And, you know, I, I, I just remember you telling, you know, that wonderful story about what was it, July of 2018, when you were actually in room six B, BCF uh, for what was supposed to be just the 10th anniversary of Star Wars, The Clone Wars. And then you guys got a whole lot more news um an, ex an explosive moment where there was there was buzz about uh different things going on and and what they were going to do and what they might continue with and then when they showed the the initial montage i remember talking about this on looking at lucasfilm but when they showed the initial 
montage, I thought, well, there's just some nice new stuff they recorded just for everybody at San Diego Comic-Con, but then it turned out mm-hmm. to be the brand new thing. That place is as electric as an environment that I've ever been in in the world of fandom, and it was unbelievable. I videoed everybody's reactions and got thousands and thousands of views almost instantaneously. It was it was just really special. And the nice thing was that Ashley Eckstein and, and a number of the cast were there, and they were mm-hmm. all very, very touched. And, and Amy Ratcliffe, who, of course, now is a big-time Star Wars author, Mm-hmm. She is a huge Clone Wars fan, and she was narr- she was moderating the panel. She mm-hmm. didn't know that was going to be the big announcement, and she burst oh, into tears. It was really oh emotional. Oh, my God. I didn't know that part of the story. Oh, that's great. That's great. Um, oh, uh, I guess something else we should mention that did they did panel uh, tangential uh, you know, to, to Star Wars, but um, – they did a presentation on the Lucas Museum of Narrative Arts, uh, which um, this billion-dollar project is still supposed to open in 2021, Dan. Um, we, we should probably start talking about this. Let's do um, it. You know, I mean, I, I, I'm intrigued alone. Just, you know, George puts on – is supposedly going to feature his collection of Norman Rockwell costume – or, excuse me, paintings – and uh, and likewise, there's supposed to be a fairly sizable Star Wars exhibit in this, but it's three hundred thousand square feet. Um, yeah, I just I, I can't. Uh, it's it's sort of painful in a way because this was supposed to be in Chicago. It was, and it was. we got so 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 close to it actually happening, and then a lot of uh, silliness and political. Uh, jabber and people, you know, trying to basically get a piece of the pie everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I'm just very much sort of shortchanging everything that really happened. But basically, I'm still bitter about it because if it was in Chicago, I probably would have gotten a chance uh, to see George and say hello to him and and get mm-hmm. to experience this more and more frequently than it being across the country for me. But that's okay. They well, didn't ask it- me. If it's any consolation, the very same thing then happened in San Francisco. I mean, face it, you know, the location now in L.A., uh, you know, at Exposition Park is really, you know, the the default from those two, you know, more, you know, uh, George was far more enthusiastic about those two sites. So, Um, so, but again, we'll we'll catch it when it's out in L.A., when it opens in 2021, though I suspect that the early 2021 uh, opening uh, that's was previous since when I was, I think it's sliding a little bit further into probably the not on the table. Yeah. So um, I, I, the other thing, frankly, I was kind of surprised about uh, coming out of Comic-Con at, at home was you would, you would think that Disney and Lucasfilm would have taken, you know, advantage of the, the captive audience, so to speak, everybody who was, you know, tuning in from home to to use that to hype uh, season two of Mandalorian, which, by the way, I don't know if you heard the earnings call, uh, you know, just yesterday, but they confirmed that, you know, season two starting in October. Um, don't, but, you, don't you think they saved any announcement to wait until the week that Star Wars Celebration was supposed to happen and maybe then we'll get something? <sighs> that makes sense. I mean, that'll be pretty soon. Yeah, in fact, I, I actually had a section about Star Wars Celebration in the original show notes for tonight. And I actually cut it out because it was too painful. It's just, you know, I, 
I, you know, was really looking forward to that. They're going to really look forward to you and I going to Star Wars night and the whole schmear and that's a So, but if, but if I guess means the, that when it actually does, it'll be that much better. There you go. There you go. Though for fans of the Mandalorian, though, it, things didn't get much better than last week's Emmy announcement. Did you see that fifth? nominations a remarkable way was it i know it wasn't the top one but it was one of the top wasn't it oh absolutely but and and the interesting thing is you know it's it's one thing i mean face it given what we learned from uh you know sours the, the mandalorian that wonderful behind the scenes series they did on, on disney plus uh the, the disney gallery i think it was called um, you know, it, it's not really a surprise given what they showed us about how the show was produced, that they, they, they scored all sorts of tech, uh, again, you know, nominations in tech categories. There's outstanding cinematography, three separate nominations for, uh, outstanding singer camel, camera picture editing for a drama series, likewise sound editing, sound mixing. Um, and, and again, just given the look of the show and, and that sort of thing, not a surprise that it got outstanding, a nod for outstanding visual effects, uh, outstanding production design, uh, sci-fi fantasy costumes, prosthetic makeup, and even the stunt work. Um, but I have to admit, given they had that wonderful episode of, um, Disney Gallery, The Mandalorian, about how the music for the show came together. It was really sweet to see that Ludwig Gorosan uh, scored a nomination for outstanding music composition. And I see that one. And I wish I would have, we would have gotten a little more acknowledgement of the acting and the storytelling side, but we really didn't get that. Well, no, no, but, 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 uh, you know, uh, you know, you, we did get Taika Watiti, uh, at, at, you know, for his voice work on, uh, IG 11 and Giancarlo Esposito. I mean, he did get, uh, outstanding guest, uh, a nomination for outstanding guest star as Moff Gideon. Very true. But, and I guess being nominated for best drama is, is pretty no, cool. That is huge. Pablo Hidalgo even acknowledged that on Twitter and he doesn't really comment on Star Wars very much on social media anymore. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so that, that you know, that for the uh, season one, uh, you know, for a new on a newly launched subscription streaming service. Um, I mean, yeah, I know from conversations with folks at, at Disney and Lucasfilm, they are just thrilled that it got this 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 level of recognition, and you know, whatever they win, <laughs> they are certainly using it to hype season two of um, the Mandalorian. Oh, uh, but by the way, it's it's worth noting that uh, the two TV movies that we talked about, if you know, it, this won't be did, uh, you know Lucasfilm's first Emmy. Uh, they actually took home Emmys uh, for visual effects on Caravan and Courage and the Battle of Andor. Uh, likewise, um, they also took home two daytime uh, the, the Star Wars, the, the Clone Wars took home two daytime Emmys for outstanding special class animated program. Uh, that was in 2013 and 2014. Um, and I, I also wanted to mention uh, that among the, the nominations they didn't win for uh, was one for Mark Hamill, uh, who in 2015 was nominated as Outstanding Performer in an Animated Program for his vocal performance as Darth Bane in Sacrifice, which was, uh, what was it, Season 6, Episode 13, uh, and I wanted to mention that because, Dan, I so enjoyed 
your most recent teaching with Star Wars column. Um, what you know, just that it's such a it's been such a strong series. Um, you know, the, the, in fact, the one that immediately preceded this, the one about Leia uh, and her empathy and acceptance and Return of the Jedi, but this this one about Yoda and. Uh, especially the version of Yoda that we see in Clone Wars. And again, you know, 900-year-old, uh, you know, character who is still willing to learn. And and there's this, this amazing story that's told over three episodes. What is it? Voices, Destiny, and, and Sacrifice? Yes. And, but this is also uh, where we get, you know, Mark Hamill uh, doing Darth Bane. And and again, it's just it's such a it's a great performance by him that that's you know honestly such a, an amazing contrast to his work as uh, Luke Skywalker. It is glorious, and uh, he always does things sort of against type. I mean, I guess he was the voice of Chucky. You know, mm-hmm. that's certainly as far from <laughs> Luke Skywalker as you can get. Yep. What I like about continuing to write these things, and I'm very grateful to Lucasfilm and, and continues to have me do them, is mm-hmm. that. I get to explore not only what it means to be a teacher, what mm. it means to learn, what it means uh, to say, change your point of view to sort of swallow your pride, or as you acknowledged, even though you're just because you're a teacher doesn't mean you stop learning and stop growing. And I think that's really important. And I think you're no, really no, like the one coming out next week too. That is a great, great message. And I, I say that coming from a family of teachers. That's, you know, that's the, in fact, Honestly, I think that's the, the one thing the American education system, I, I would love this if they, they would embrace this as an idea, but the notion of we really need to teach people how to continue to learn. You know, they, like you must be a lifelong learner to be a successful educator, in my opinion. Oh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and, and if you think about, you know, how every day, you know, whether it's, you know, learning how to use your new phone or learning how to use your new laptop or learning how to use a new piece of software or, you know, picking up a book about a subject you've never, you know, touched on before. I mean, it's, I think it's very important to to keep yourself open to those sorts of things. And, you know, you know, especially when people get to be my age in their 60s, they start to close off, you know, because it's like brain full, (laughs) you know, it's like, you know that. Yeah. In fact, we we just got a a, a new remote for we, we the uh they came in and changed all the the um the units here at the house and I ha- I'm now have to, to learn how to use a a brand new remote and oh that's fun no oh, yes it, it, Nancy's gonna yeah Nancy's gonna take me out back and and you know hit me in the head with a rock and bury me at some point because it's just sort of like she's she's the intelligent one of the house i'm the one who's where is the odd switch (laughs) um but i but at the same time you know i i hate to to bring this up because it's like you know we have the 60 year olds who you know need to be open to learn new things and and then we have the the 20 year olds who, who seem to know it all and you know, that's I, I, I have to admit, I sort of enjoyed John Boyega in the past week where did, did you see what he tweeted out about how he's he's done with the, the Star Wars franchise? I did. It's like it's it's the classic tradition of people from one of the three, you know, eras of Star Wars storytelling and cinema saying that they're pretty much done. I mean, 
Harrison Ford, Ian McGregor, you know, so, so now we've got the mantle and it's a, it's a good group, but they, you know, it's easy for me to say, we'll never say never pal. I mean, just ask Sean Connery about that, but yep. you know, I mean, yep. it, it's a long yep. career and I, and I think you can clearly, and, and basically Oscar Isaac had said, he's only going to do Star Wars again if he wants to buy another house. My guess is they're hopefully just having a phone. They're sick of people everywhere they go asking them about it. But yeah. I don't know. I Of course, you hope that they'll revisit it. And I still believe that, you know, that that will happen. But I don't know. I don't get it. Well, you know, just uh, it, it's, it's I, you know, uh, not to bring another franchise in here, but there's the famous, you know, Leonard Nimoy wrote the book that I am not Spock. And then what is it, 20 years later, he's not only appearing in Star Trek movie, he's directing them. Uh, in fact, he then went on to to to, to do the J.J. Abrams Spock movies, you know, or the Star Trek movies. So, you know, uh, he, he kind of went in an entirely different direction. So, um, long story short, I, you, know, I, I, you know, I know what Joan Baig is saying now, but you know, I, I don't think Billy Dee Williams thought he'd be doing Lando again, you know, some 37 years later. So, um, but you're right. Never say never. Um, now, I, I, I have to ask about um, the other thing that popped up online uh, Star Wars related over the past week. Did, did you see what fake Disney facts did with his TikTok video? You may not have noticed this, but Aaron Adams actually asked me on Twitter about it. And he said he expected a full dissertation on looking at Lucasfilm or coffee with Kenobi about it. And I did talk about it this week on Facebook Live, but I, I definitely have lots of thoughts on this. I I have to say that at first, well, I, mean, no, I want to start by saying I'm not normally a fan of these, you know, revisit something you're familiar with, but look at it from a different you know point of view. But I actually think some of this has merit, you know? I mean, if you take, for example, you know, rather than calling episode one The Phantom Menace, The Rise of Skywalker, and it's like, well, yeah, we do get to see little Anakin Skywalker and come into some of his powers. Um, And... Well, should we just run over what they all say? Uh, Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay, so... Episode one, of course, is Phantom Menace, and he suggests the rise of Skywalker. Mm-hmm. Episode two is Attack of the Clones. He suggests it's Revenge of the Sith mm-hmm. because the Sith actually um, come back at the end under the guise of Darth Tyrannus. Mm-hmm. Episode three is Revenge of the Sith, but he says it should be Attack of the Clones because that's when they attack after Order 66. Mm-hmm. Episode four is A New Hope, but he says that should be Return of the Jedi because Luke is back in the fold uh, after being you know, a child uh, mm-hmm. when we last saw him. A baby, in fact. Episode five is Empire, and, and he says it should be The Force Awakens because, well, I guess that's pretty self self mm-hmm. inherent. Episode six is Return of the Jedi. He says it should be The Last Jedi because Obi Wan and Yoda are gone. Episode seven is Fan is um, Force Awakens, and mm-hmm. he says it should be The Empire Strikes Back because we get the rise of the First Order. Mm-hmm. Episode eight is The Last Jedi. He says it should be A New Hope because of Rey, and then Episode nine. He says should be the Phantom Menace instead of the Rise of Skywalker. So, uh, tell me. So you think it's got some merit, and I do think there's some clever stuff here, particularly some of the stuff towards the end. Mm-hmm. But the reason that this doesn't work, and I do applaud this this young man for doing this because I think it was fun, it was clever, and I think he probably did it tongue in cheek too. But I don't know that for certain. 
Mm-hmm. But the problem with this is that none of these titles that are re-switched are really encompassing the overall story. Episode one should be the Phantom Menace because the whole thing is about Palpatine slowly growing behind the scenes. It's so subtle that it, first it wasn't really clear why it was called the Phantom Menace. Mm-hmm. I think that was that was pretty pretty slick. Shouldn't be the Rise of Skywalker because Anakin Skywalker shows up and says yippee and flies around in a, a Naboo starfighter, but it doesn't really do that much. Episode two should definitely be Attack of the Clones because that is when they first attack at the end of the Battle of Geonosis. It shouldn't be Revenge of the Sith because there's no revenge. They're not getting back. They haven't. They don't do anything that is mm-hmm. that is revenge worthy for the level of the Sith. Episode. Uh, three revenge. Well, I guess well, they're flipped on here. So episode mm-hmm. three shouldn't be revenge, or should be revenge of the Sith because the clones, yes, they attack, but it's much, much more significant to the overall story that the Sith do actually get the revenge and wipe out the Jedi. Um, and I could go on and on on this, but but essentially, the these titles, the original titles, and I will grant you the Attack of the Clones is is the weakest of of all mm-hmm. of the the actual titles, but none of them are including. And what's most important to the story? Episode nine shouldn't be the Phantom Menace because he's not a phantom. Hmm. The entire galaxy knows it's Palpatine because he literally broadcasts it from some weird frequency that has not been around. Hmm. Interesting point. I, I for me, fifteen more minutes. No, 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 no. Okay, again, always enjoy your insight, and you know, coming from you know both your, your English teaching background as well as fandom. I mean, I, I love the Venn diagram here, but I, I have to admit, playing you know, sort of slippy slidey with which title is you know attached to which film. You know what really comes across here is they really did deliver on the serial titles. I mean, these, you know, if you look at them sort of stripped away from their films, they do have a lovely 1930s, 1940s quality to them, you know, that, that, you know, and, and remember that's, you know, the Buck Rogers and the Flash Gordon, you know, serials are what, you know, inspired George back in the day to do this. Um, so I don't know. I just, I, 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 it was a fun exercise that I think, again, you know, that to applaud fake Disney facts for, you know, just making us look at it different and realize, yeah, you know, it's been fun and in, in contributing to the conversation in a positive way. I love it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, um, all right, folks, we're going to take a quick break here and then we get back. Uh, as promised, we're going to talk a little bit about. Uh, Tom Pollock and his uh, part in the creation of the Star Wars franchise. And we're back. Um, by the way, again, I got a gratuitous plug here. Uh, Dan, again, my co-host here, is is a soon-to-be-published author of the Star Wars book, uh, which he, he co-authored with Colton Horton, uh, Cole, excuse me, Cole Horton and Pablo Hidalgo. Uh, it's still slated to hit our shelves on o- October 20th, right? It sure is. As, as far as I can tell, it's full speed ahead. Okay. Okay. But it, it's, it's 224 pages of Star Wars goodness, folks. Um, but if you can't wait till then, uh, just yesterday, a brand new Star Wars book came out, Poe Dameron Freefall, uh, written by an Alex Segura. Uh, is that correct? I think that's right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I was wondering, again, I, I realized you get sent all of this stuff. It, did you manage to check this book out? Because it, it's, what about the adventures of a young Poe Dameron, right? 
Yeah, I have the audio in the in the actual book itself, and it, and it basically goes over him and explains his relationship with a lot of the people we meet from the rise of Skywalker, uh, including the character portrayed by oh my gosh, uh, Felicity. Uh, what's her name? I can't think of her name. Oh, uh, Zuri. Uh, yeah, Zuri, uh, Zuri Bliss is the, mm-hmm. the but I can't think of the actress. Uh, we'll grade in a curve here. You got the yeah. Felicity part. I think she yeah. actually starred in the show Felicity. Felicity. But, yeah, which of course means happiness. I would be happy if I could remember her name, but that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. You know, the, but again, uh, a, a good read, you know, that the, the, offer any insight. It, yeah, that? it's, it's, it's good. I, I'm, I'm a little, Poe Dameron, I've, I've become a little bit lukewarm on pun intended ever mm-hmm. since the rise of Skywalker, because I think his characterization was drastically different from the other films. Mm-hmm. But this at least makes an attempt to explain sort of why uh, this this place and his old association is part of his kryptonite. So it's fun. It's fun. Oh, okay. All right. Well, again, if you're looking for something to read till the Star Wars book shows up, you know, to check out Poe Dameron Freefall. Anyway, I, again, top of the show, uh, promise to talk about Tom Pollack, the chairman of Universal Pictures, as well as the American Film Institute. Uh, but that was back in the 1990s and 2000s. Back in 1971, Tom was just a lawyer. To be specific, he was George Lucas's lawyer. And his client had a very unusual request when it came to his next production deal with a major studio. Um, okay, the, the following I pulled from an interview that Pollock did uh, in 2015 with Deadline. In fact, he, evidently, um, this was part of the, um, uh, the lead up to Force Awakens. You know, people were drilling down into the history of the Star Wars franchise. And uh, Tom, as the story picks up, it's 1971. I became George's attorney. Uh, he had just done THX uh, 1138 with Francis Ford Coppola for Warner Brothers. Uh, it's an extension of the short he did at USC. And so the first deal that uh, Tom helps negotiate for George, two-picture deal with the United Artists, uh, and it calls for George to write the script for American Graffiti, and then to also write an untitled science fiction film in nine parts. And, and Tom goes on to say, swear to God, this was in the contract. I know this because when Skywalker Ranch was built, George had a time capsule buried, and one of the things I put in there was that contract, along with the Articles of Incorporation for Lucasfilm. Um, anyway, moving forward here, William Huck and Gloria Katz write the screenplay for American Graffiti with George, and when they turn it in, David Picker, who was the then head of United Artists, passes on the project. Um, and, and David, you know, or, you know, also, uh, you know, passed on the second film, but well, that science fiction film in nine parts. Um, so the Huck Cat script for American Graffiti goes to Universal. Uh, actually went all over town. Uh, there was a time when American Graffiti almost got made at American International Pictures. Um, uh, but it finally gets made at Universal with Francis Ford Coppola's help. Um, and, and, you know, as we've discussed on, on earlier looking at Lucasfilm, when American Graffiti was finished and shown to the studio, Ned Tennant, the then head of Universal Pictures, didn't like what he saw. Uh, and by now, George has actually written the treatment for Star Wars, the full treatment. Uh, Universal has an option for George's next movie, and the treatment is submitted to Universal. 
and they pass on it. Um, and, and again, they had this option to make Star Wars because they had made American Graffiti. Um, so Jeff Berg, who was George's agent, takes the treatment over to Alan Ladd Jr. at Fox. And Ladd says, okay, I'll make this. And they negotiate the outline of the deal. Uh, George gets $50,000 to write the script, another $50,000 to produce the film, and then a final $50,000 payment to direct. Um, anyway, as you know, Dan and I have talked about on previous shows, American Graffiti comes out, and it's a huge hit. You know, it, it only costs $750,000 to make and sells over $100 million worth of tickets worldwide. And Jeff, you know, Jeff, George's agent, wants to take advantage of this. You know, so he says to, to George, look, I can get you a lot more than $150,000. We can get 500000 maybe a million. And George's response is really kind of interesting. George says, look, I'm going to have a lot of money now for American Graffiti. What I really want from the deal we're making with Fox is I see this movie in multi-parts. Uh, by the way, uh, Tom goes on to say, George and I have had a disagreement over whether it was six parts or nine parts, but this is the way you always saw it. It was always envisioned as this serial. Uh, so George goes on to say, and, and it's important to understand here that George had an innate suspicion of Hollywood studios. Said the worst thing that can happen to me is I couldn't make the sequel or I couldn't make the rest of the series if the first one worked. So you have to make sure that I have the ability to do that. So that part fell to Tom. Um, so instead of taking more money or, or other things, George used the success of graffiti for that. I, you know, and uh, Tom goes on to say, I want to emphasize that none of this was because George knew that Star Wars was going to be six, you know, so successful. It was all about, I don't want to have to, to not have the ability to make the movies I want to make and then have it get lost in what today is known as development hell. So in the negotiations that were going on with Fox, um, they drew up a contract with Fox's head of business, a gentleman called Bill Ilmerman, and, you know, uh, Tom, you know, wrote her on the contract. And we came up with an agreement that George would retain the sequel rights. Um, not all of the stuff that came later, mind you, just the sequel rights. And Fox would then have the first opportunity and the last refusal rights to make those sequels. And, you know, you got to, you know, again, looking back, you know, what? So, so this is almost 50 years ago now, Dan. Um, but, you know, you got to admire the fact that George, rather than going for the quick buck, um, you know, that, that followed in, in the wake of American Graffiti's huge success, he opted for control instead. You know, he took the long view. Um, you know, and, and more importantly, he had a lawyer who was willing to do what his client wanted. Um, you know, more rather more than the, yeah, the history of this thing, as we've talked about mm -hmm. a lot, and it's just so beautiful because he took so many risks and did so many things outside the box mm -hmm. that no one, literally no one did. Now it just seems commonplace, but he was such a visionary and in many ways kind of pleasantly stubborn about this and boy did it ever pay off for all of us oh absolutely and and by the way folks 
Uh, I highly recommend Deadline put up this interview, uh, you know, uh, reprinted it as part of, you know, they, 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 they ran some, some lovely tribute pieces to Tom Pollock. And, and it's worth reading the entirety of this interview because it then talked about, you know, George, you know, what a canny operator George was. You know, how he used the leverage of, you know, Star Wars, even huger success than American Graffiti, to not only go back, you know, I mean, to, to then renegotiate the deal with Fox that, you know, he got the merchandise rights back for the for the toys. Uh, he got the right to, uh, you know, to, to limit Fox to just a distribution fee um, and, you know, so much of which sort of set the stage for. You know, that $4 billion deal when, when Disney, uh, you know, acquired Lucasfilm, uh, that was only possible because George, again, you know, uh, with the help of Tom Pollock, was able to to set this up in such a way that, you know, it it, it became this separate entity, you know, that, that it, sure, the film was, you know, you know, went out as a 20th Century Fox title, but it was the property of George Lucas. So, um, anyway... Um, okay. So that's, that, that's it for looking at Lucasfilm this week. Uh, what's going on over at Coffee with Kenobi these days? Well, our, our newest show, we had Ahmed Best, the, of course, the, the yes. actor behind Jar Jar Binks and right. uh, the host of Star Wars Jedi Temple Challenge, which just wrapped up its first season on YouTube. And he was unbelievable. I mean, a, a true gentleman and a scholar, his, his knowledge of etymology and storytelling and education was just really inspiring to me. We really had the best time conversing. And I think uh, people will love listening to it if you haven't done so already. And on our Patreon show, CWK Pour Over, if you want to be a member of our CWK Alliance, you can certainly go to our Patreon page. And we are wrapping up our top 15 fictional characters of all time. So be sure to check it out. Okay, uh, this we talked about this on the, the the last show. Who who has recently been added to the list? Uh, let's see. So I believe the time of this airing, uh, six through ten, has shown up. But uh, I have two Star Wars characters in six through ten, and one of them will be a big surprise. That's what I'll say. Hmm. Okay. Um, one for the world of literature, uh, a character created by Mr. Mark Twain. Oh, okay. All right. Love me some Mark Twain. Um, I, I wanted to, you know, again, you, you've talked previously on, on the show about your affection for uh, Solo, a Star Wars story. I was actually down. My mom went into the hospital for a couple of days. Uh, oh, I hope she's okay. Oh, no, she's out now. She, 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 she's back to her usual. But uh, it meant that somebody had to sort of step in and watch my dad for a couple of days. So I was down in Massachusetts uh, for four days dad sitting. And over the process, I want to say it was either TNT or TBS showed Solo or Star TNT. Wars. Hmm? Yeah, I think it was TNT. Okay. Um, I, you know, my dad had never seen Solo, uh, you know, a Star Wars story. He didn't get out to theaters to see it. So it's cool. Let's watch this. Um, and he, he, he really enjoyed it. And actually, um, this is only the second time I've seen the film and I, it actually holds up fairly well. Um, it's, it's great. It's just a fun, entertaining romp. I don't know that it necessarily says anything important, but it doesn't always have to. It's just 
an entertaining, fun movie with great mm-hmm. effects and some great performances. Oh, I agree. I agree. Uh, you know, but it, at the same time, I, you know, after watching it, you know, rather than on a movie screen, you know, on a television, I have to admit that, you know, I, I, I you know, my enthusiasm for this, this rumored continuation of Solo as a Disney Plus project, um, I, I, I think it could work, you know, in that setting. So it just it would be interesting to see it go forward. Um, anyway, okay, so we talked about uh, coffee with Kenobi. What about the on, on the Patreon side? What's going on there? Well, like I said, that's where we do our our top fifteen fictional characters, and we're about to wrap that up. So I'm looking forward to seeing what everybody thinks. And the fun part is mm-hmm. on our Patreon message board, people are typing in and adding their top fifteen favorite characters as we move along. So everybody's literally a part of the show. And forgive me for asking, anybody had a Catch-22 Ysarian, maybe? No? No. No. (laughs) All right. Sorry. You want to find out. (laughs) Okay. Okay. We'll definitely have to check this out. And uh, speaking of other stuff, uh, you folks want to check out uh, here at the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network, we have a bunch of shows as well. We've got... Disney Dish with Lentesta. We've got Marvel Us Disney, uh, which I do with Aaron Adams, the, the gentleman who does, uh, you know, all of the editing here. Uh, we also have Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, uh, your good, close, personal friend, Dan. Uh, That's your fictional character. <laughs> <laughs> we also have uh, Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse. Uh, in fact, we're going to be knocking on a show with that over the next couple of days. And likewise, we'll be working on a new I Want That with Shelley Valladolid. Um, tell you what, folks, if you could do Dan and I a favor, if you could head over to iTunes and rate and recommend not only this show, Looking at Lucasfilm, but also Coffee with Kenobi, uh, that helps send additional ears and eyes our way. Uh, on the other hand, if you really, really, really like what you listened to tonight, um, if you could head over to Bandcamp to subscribe, um, well, that then makes it possible to 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 pay for copies of the Star Wars book by Dan Z and and Cole Horton and Pablo Hidalgo coming out on October twentieth. You know, I, I think that's enough plugs for tonight, Dan. Um, let's Jackson see. <laughs> oh, speaking of plugs, all right. Um, again, you know, the, the half the fun of 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 Twitter these days is is following what Dan's up to. Uh, and again, how is it they find you on Twitter, Dan? You can find me on Twitter at Mr. Zer M R Z E H R, and you can find Coffee with Kenobi all over social media. Be sure to like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and find us on Instagram and Twitter as well. Terrific. And Nancy wants me to remind you that you can find us on Twitter and Instagram as Jim Hill Media and over on Facebook at JimHillMediaNews.com. Uh, anyway, again, folks, uh, like I said, if you, if you enjoyed the, the Tom Pollock thing, please head over to Deadline. Uh, the full interview is there. And it, it's again, this guy had a huge part to play in the history of Star Wars. And it's uh, the history of Star Wars. Hopefully we'll be back with more stories on the next podcast. So till then, take care, folks. <laughs>